Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. This week, NASA hopes to launch a mission that will visit more heavenly bodies than any before it. But what will this probe uncover? Hello and welcome to Babbage, our weekly podcast on science and technology. I'm Alok Jha, a science correspondent at The Economist. Today we'll be exploring those little understood rocky bodies that hurtle around the solar system. Asteroids. What could these celestial objects reveal about the origins of the planets? These objects are very different from one another. And that's clearly telling us something about planet formation. How can scientists keep watch on asteroids that get a little too close for comfort? We would like to know where most of those are, the ones that are big enough to cause appreciable damage if one were to ever impact the Earth. And if a cataclysmic collision is on the cards, how can Earth be best protected? We'll know, okay, here comes an asteroid. It looks like it's so big. This is what we need to do to make it miss. The threat of an enormous space rock crashing into planet Earth is a classic setup for disaster films. But impacts have happened in real life. Ancient asteroids have left an indelible mark on the Earth's surface. The Chicxulub crater in Mexico, for example, is the remnant of a 10-kilometre-wide asteroid that crashed into our planet 65 million years ago. In the epic devastation that followed, most of the dinosaurs were wiped out. But how much is actually known about meteorites, comets and asteroids today? Firstly, what are they? There's a lot of different terminology out there that refers to the rocky leftovers from our solar system's formation a long time ago. If you see one of these objects in space, freely floating and, and orbiting the sun, we call it an asteroid. Amy Meinzer is a professor of planetary science at the University of Arizona. If we see the object entering the Earth's atmosphere and you've all seen a, a bright streak in the sky, a, a shooting star, if you will, that's the same thing. It's just a, a different phenomenon. It's just entered the Earth's atmosphere now and released its energy as light. Those asteroids that we see in the solar system are mostly rocky, but not entirely. Sometimes they're a complicated mix of different volatile species, meaning things like water ices, carbon dioxide ice, and, and other things. 
And we have some of the bodies in our solar system, some of these small leftover fragments that we call comets. These are objects now that have a mixture of ices and rocks all kind of molded together in sort of a frozen mud ball, if you will. And they just have a much higher concentration of these volatile gases and ices and things all mixed together. There are a lot of these bodies that are out there and surprisingly little is known about them for how many there are and, and how long we've known of their existence. How many asteroids do we know of? It's actually a really difficult question to answer because there are so many. We think there are billions of them in the inner part of the solar system between, say, us and Saturn, if you will. At present, we know of about roughly a million or so total. And that number has grown enormously in the last decade or so as modern surveys have really started to search for these objects in earnest. But we think that's only a tiny fraction of what's actually out there. It must be a tiny fraction, yeah. It, feel, it feels like it must be a, just a, a drop in the ocean almost, if I can make some metaphors. Yeah, yeah exactly. And in our, in our cosmic ocean, so to speak, we're, we're just seeing kind of the tips of the waves, if you will. What are the big questions then that you hope that asteroids and studying asteroids will, will help you begin to unlock? There's some thought that in our solar system, the arrangement of the planets that we see today isn't the way that it's always been. We think that uh, there's evidence that the planets may have migrated around in our solar system a long time ago. If you're interested in understanding how do solar systems form, then you want to get a look at some of the most pristine material that's out there, the stuff that hasn't been altered so much over time. So it's similar in state to what it originally was long ago. This is why asteroids and comets are so useful, because they're so old. And especially the further out in the solar system you go, the older and less processed we think things tend to be, especially among the small bodies like the Jupiter Trojans. They've just been around for a really long time. It's very cold that far away from the sun. And so they haven't experienced the degree of thermal alteration that objects that get really close to the sun in the inner part of the solar system have experienced. And so essentially they're, they're kind of like fossils for the solar system to understand what it was like billions of years ago when the Earth was, was a baby, basically. Absolutely. They're fossils, they're time capsules, they're, they're kind of a, a Rosetta Stone for understanding what the conditions were like of the solar nebula that, that gave birth to our solar system. We can look at the asteroids and comets. They're kind of like leaves falling into a rapidly moving stream. They get carried downstream. If you want to understand the pattern of the water and the eddies as all of these big rocks in the stream move and deflect the water, you can watch the way that the leaves move. And in this sense, we can watch the asteroids as they've been carried around by all the gravitational perturbations of these planets as they've rearranged over many billions of years. On Saturday, October 16th, NASA, America's space agency, plans to launch Lucy, a mission to some far-flung asteroids. The Lucy mission is a robotic mission to explore a really fascinating population of asteroids called the Jupiter Trojan asteroids. These are asteroids that lead or follow Jupiter in its orbit by about 60 degrees. And they're interesting because they're the leftovers of planet formation. My name is Hal Levison from the Southwest Research Institute in Boulder, Colorado, and I'm the Lucy Principal Investigator. You can think of it as sort of the CEO of the project. These objects are believed to have originally formed throughout the outer planetary system and were captured during the final gasps of giant planet formation. And we believe that by studying not only 
individual objects, but as a whole population, we're going to be able to untangle what happened during that final process. One of the really puzzling aspects of this population is despite the fact that it inhabits a relatively small region of space, these objects are very different from one another. And that's clearly telling us something about planet formation. But in order to understand what this diversity is telling us, we need to actually sample a diverse population of objects. So as a result, Lucy needs to go to a lot of different things. And that's leading us to this very, if you don't mind me saying, really brilliant trajectory where we rattle around in the inner solar system for a while and get to visit a total of seven of these really fascinating objects. Can you tell me what kind of measurements Lucy will be making uh, around the various Trojans and asteroids it's going to see? Because we're trying to cover a lot of real estate, we're going to a lot of objects, Lucy has to be moving very quickly. Our encounter velocities are between six and nine kilometers a second. And as a result, we're not stopping and looking at these objects in detail. We're performing flybys, which is really a natural thing to do for a first reconnaissance of a new population. But we're going to study everything we possibly can during these flybys. So we're going to look at geology and we're looking for evidence of venting and the size distribution of craters and things like that. We're also going to be able to look at the chemistry of the surface with a near-infrared spectrometer, trying to find out if there are ices or organics on the surface of these bodies. And finally, we're going to be measuring their temperature. And uh, as we look at how the surface cools off or heats up as it moves in and out of the sun, we should be able to measure the properties of the surface, whether it's grainy or fluffy or made out of rock. The other thing that we're going to do is we're going to use the communication system that we have with the spacecraft to measure the Doppler shift as we go by, and that will give us the mass of the object. So we're basically doing everything we can with a flyby. And I'm assuming, of course, there's going to be very nice high-resolution pictures of these objects that we can all enjoy. That's right. These things are going to be beautiful, I hope. And of course, the thing I'm really hoping for is we're going to find something we didn't expect. That's when science really changes. I'd be a little disappointed if we just saw what we were expecting to see. Well, let me push you on that a little bit. What's your hypothesis around what these objects might tell you about the formation of the solar system? Well, for example, these objects are very different from one another when we view them from the ground. And in particular, the colors are different. They range from just gray to actually fairly red. And we really don't have a good understanding of what makes the red objects red. We believe that it has to do with chemistry on their surface and that the colors are due to different formation temperatures because they formed at different distances. So we're hoping to identify really what is making the red red. It's probably some kind of organic material. We're hoping to understand the size distribution of the Trojans. Remember, planets form by accreting these little guys. All planets started off as a small body at one point, and they grew by eating other small bodies. So the collisional process 
is very important, but poorly understood in the outer solar system where things are made of ice and are very fluffy, we think. So one of the diagnostics is to understand how many little Trojans there are compared to how many big Trojans there are. And that can't be done from near the Earth because the small Trojans are so small, they don't reflect a lot of light. So one way we do that is by looking at the size distribution of craters, which tells us about the impacting population. And this is going to be diagnostics of the collisional environment. So we hope to understand the collisional environment where these things formed. We hope to figure out the temperature at which they formed at. And again, that will help us understand the conditions at different locations within the disk that the planets formed in. Hal, thank you very much for your time. My pleasure. While the Trojan asteroids around Jupiter might reveal some of the mysteries behind the formation of our solar system, asteroids closer to home might present a threat, an existential threat to life on Earth. Coming up, can technology be used to protect our planet from rogue celestial objects? Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The Lucy mission is not the only spacecraft that will launch from Earth in the coming weeks, with asteroids in its sights. In late November, the Double Asteroid Redirection Test, or DART, should take off. While Lucy will be exploring the unknown, embarking on Blue Skies research in the darkness of outer space, DART will have a much more practical purpose. DART is the first NASA planetary defense mission, and it is the first mission to demonstrate a way of changing the course of an asteroid. I'm Andrew Cheng. I am the lead investigator for the DART mission. I'm at the Johns Hopkins Applied Physics Laboratory. If one day we ever discover a threatening asteroid that's on course to hit the Earth, the DART mission demonstrates a way to make the asteroid miss the Earth. And what DART will do is it will take the spacecraft, we'll smash it into the asteroid. We want to deflect an asteroid and also measure the amount of deflection that we cause. So that in the future, we'll know, okay, here comes an asteroid. It looks like it's so big. This is what we need to do to make it miss. What is the risk of an asteroid collision with Earth? So asteroids, of the size, let's say, 140 meters in diameter. This is uh, bigger than a, a football pitch. Asteroids of 140 meters or larger fall upon Earth about once every 20,000 years. An asteroid that large, if it hits over a populated region, would 
cause a regional scale disaster, meaning that it's destroy the area of a small state larger than a large city. So that is the kind of disaster we would like to be able to avoid. And the way to do that is to deflect the asteroid, change its course so that it does not hit the Earth. So DART will soon be launching into space. Um, just tell me exactly how it will work. Yes, we're going to launch into space. We will head out directly on a direct ballistic transfer. So we just go straight out to the asteroid. It takes not quite a year to do that. And the interesting thing is that we're going to a double asteroid. So it's an asteroid which is actually orbiting around another asteroid. And we are targeting the smaller of the two, the asteroid moon called Dimorphos, and changing its orbit around the other asteroid, Didymos. About 30 days before reaching Didymos, we will have our first pictures of Didymos. And those pictures will be used to help steer us close enough to the asteroid that the spacecraft can take over with its autonomous guidance system. And in the last four hours before we reach the asteroid, the spacecraft actually controls itself. It's no longer being steered from the ground, but it will guide itself by taking pictures of the asteroid, processing them on board, and then determining what steering corrections it needs to be able to hit the asteroid. So what are some of the challenges you're faced with when you're trying to hit a uh, moving asteroid? So when the camera sees the target, it sees not one, but two asteroids. And the spacecraft needs to be able to decide which one is the correct target to hit. So we do that automatically. And there's another complication as well, which is that when we first get close enough to actually be able to distinguish the two asteroids as separate bodies in the camera, our actual target is not visible. It's not visible because it's behind the other bigger asteroid. And so only one hour before the planned impact, the camera actually sees its target come out from behind the other asteroid. So it recognizes, okay, there's my target, and then it will home in on that. So the last few minutes is when we actually need to acquire all the data that we want for being able to determine exactly where we hit, exactly what does the terrain look like. And the spacecraft also needs to return all the data to Earth in a mad rush, simply because it's going to crash into the asteroid. Once it does that, it is not going to return any more data. So we have to take our pictures as we come in close, and the best pictures are in the last minute. And the spacecraft during this time is streaming images back in real time. This is going to be a very tense and very exciting time because we'll be watching on the ground as we get closer and closer until that's it. It sounds like quite a white knuckle ride, especially that last hour, given that there's going to be many, many years of work culminating in this one hour, which I'm sure you're going to be incredibly nervous about. How will you judge the success of the mission from Earth? All right. So when we impact the asteroid to change its course, we're changing the orbit of the moon around the primary asteroid. And what that does actually is it changes the time it takes for the moon to go completely around its parent body. So that time is going to be changed by about 10 minutes. Right now, it's 11.92 hours. So we're talking about a 1% on the order change. 
And we're going to be measuring that from the ground, the ground-based telescopes. So success is, first of all, we have to hit the asteroid. And we have to hit it on a certain time. So we hit the moon dimorphos of the Dynamo system in October 2022. So those are two of the requirements. We have to change the orbit period by a minimum amount. Our requirement is to change it by 73 seconds or more. We expect to change it by 10 minutes. And then the last of our success criteria is that we need to determine how much momentum is transferred to our target body, because that's what we really want to know in the future, is if we have a spacecraft like the DART that carries a certain amount of momentum, how much do you transfer to your targets? So I just wonder, to scale up to the level of deflecting an asteroid that's dangerous to Earth, let's say we discover one in 20 or 30 years' time and we want to build something, what are the challenges in scaling something up from the DART mission to you know, a real deflection mission for an Earth killer? Okay, the DART mission is already being done on a target which is of a realistic size. So we think that the most likely threatening asteroid size is actually about the same size as what DART is already going after. So we may not need to scale up. And it may be that the best way to scale up is not to make a bigger DART, but to make more of them, to use more than one. So that you would be able to, if you say launch five interceptors at your target, you would see the effects of one, then two, then three, and you'd say, okay, that's actually probably enough, or whatever. Andrew, thank you very much for your time. Thank you, it's been a pleasure. If an asteroid the size of Didymus, which is almost 800 metres in diameter, hit the Earth, it could devastate half a continent, cause firestorms, and throw up so much dust into the atmosphere that it would block the sun, destroying food crops, and cooling the Earth's climate for years. Though the chances of such an impact are extremely rare, researchers like Amy Meinzer have made it their goal to hunt down any asteroids that move close to Earth. Those are called near-Earth objects. We would like to know where most of those are, the ones that are big enough to cause appreciable damage if one were to ever impact the Earth. So the NEO Surveyor is a mission that will go out and make a giant map of where most of these, I would say, medium to large near-Earth objects are. And it will go and measure their orbits, too. And when you say medium or large, what are we talking about? Well, the things we think that can really cause severe ground damage have to be pretty big. Our atmosphere does a pretty good job of, of protecting us from things that are, say, about, I would say, 20 meters across and smaller. Anything that's larger than that, though, is liable to punch through the Earth's atmosphere, and it can make a pretty big hole in the ground if it's able to collide. So the things we're interested in with NEO Surveyor are, are on the size of, say, about 100 meters across and larger. Those are the real targets of the project. We really want to go out and find these objects when they are ideally decades away from any potential close approach to the Earth. We just spoke to Andrew Cheng of the DART mission. Do you think that his sort of deflection mission would be the best way to protect the Earth? Well, it really all depends on whether or not you have enough time. And it depends a lot on the asteroid and the circumstances of its discovery. If you discover the asteroid and we find out that it's headed our way within just a matter of weeks, obviously we're not going to be launching any sort of a deflection mission. If, on the other hand, the asteroid is not too large and has been found far enough ahead of time, then something like the DART mission, where it's just a straightforward kinetic impact, as we would call it, or bump into it, that might be enough to delay the time of its arrival so that the Earth and the asteroid never meet at the same place at the same time. 
That's the goal, anyway. So the crucial thing is to identify asteroids that are potentially dangerous many, many decades beforehand. So tell us a bit more about the NEO surveyor then. I mean, how will that work in identifying, finding, tracking asteroids and working out their trajectories so that we know how dangerous they are? Well, the projected uh, plan for the NEO surveyor is that it's just going to augment the existing network of ground-based and space-based telescopes that we already have to try to basically fill out our capabilities so we can see further away. The objective of the observatory is is pretty straightforward. It just does one thing. It goes out and it just looks at the sky, searching back and forth over and over again and again and again for years to fill out our knowledge of where these objects are. It is going to operate using infrared wavelengths of light as opposed to visible light. So in other words, this is a telescope that will be sensing the very faint heat signatures from the asteroids as opposed to looking for the sunlight bouncing off of their surfaces. In that sense, it'll complement the capabilities of the visible telescopes that we have, or that we're going to have, is it'll be using a different wavelength. And when do you hope that uh, the surveyor will be operational? Well, right now we're projecting a launch in early 2026. Of course, that all depends on (laughs) on a lot of things, but but, uh, that's that's the plan. There have been so many very, very exciting asteroid missions lately. I mean, of course, a NASA probe took a sample from an asteroid last year. We had Rosetta and uh, Philae several years ago, which landed on an asteroid, the Japanese space agency missions. What do you think it is about asteroids that have excited so many people in the last decade or so? You know, one of the things that drew me to the study of asteroids is they move. And they move pretty fast <laughs> in their move on timescales that, that human beings can, can see and appreciate. And when we look at asteroids in our solar systems, we see that our universe is a very active place. So I think in some sense, uh, part of, for me, the fascination with these asteroids is a sense that there's a sense of connection a little bit, that we're a part of the solar system that is moving and constantly changing. Amy, I think that it's fair to say you're an asteroid nerd. (laughs) And um, I just wonder, do you have an asteroid named after you? I do, actually, yeah. It is asteroid 234750 Amy Meinzer, otherwise known as 2002 NX69. And do, do we know where it is? What is it doing? Is it dangerous? Oh, no, no. <laughs> no, no. Asteroid Amy Meinzer is perfectly harmless, which is, uh, which is great news from my perspective. This is an object that orbits in the outer part of the main asteroid belt between Mars and Jupiter. And uh, it goes around the sun every about five years or so, 5.7 years. It's very, very dark. Its surface is covered with a sort of a black carbonaceous material. And it's about seven and a half kilometers across. Amy, thank you very much for joining me. Oh, thanks so much. It's been a pleasure. There'll be plenty more reporting on asteroids at economist.com. You can also find out about the scientific discoveries recognised in last week's Nobel Prizes. The prize in medicine or physiology was awarded jointly to David Julius and Ardem Pataputian for their discoveries of receptors for temperatures and touch. Most cells communicate with each other through chemicals, But these neurons have to translate physical stimuli, something very different, the temperature, pressure, and transform that information into a chemical signal that neurons and cells would understand and can communicate with each other. Ardem Pataputian is a professor of neuroscience at Scripps Research in San Diego. And although it was known that these sensors existed, their molecular identity was not known. And that's what my lab did for pressure as well as temperature, together with my co-laureate David Julius. We asked Professor Pataputian 
how his discoveries can be developed into useful applications. Our interest is science for science sake, discovery's sake. I think how you sense the world around you is very interesting to us. And to find these molecules that does that is exciting by itself. But obviously we're having to witness, as in most basic sciences, that there's some translational aspects emerging that are very exciting. It is possible that blocking these receptors or sensors could provide tomorrow's medications for pain. But also we're finding out that similar to sense of touch, pressure sensing is also important for many other processes, including regulating blood pressure, regulating sensation of bladder filling, um, many, many other things where their mechanical nature, these molecules seem to be playing a role. And each of these cases present a possibility to, to help humankind by translating these findings into the clinic, hopefully sometime soon. You can read more in The Economist. Get your best subscription offer at economist.com slash podcast offer. That link is in the show notes. And finally, loyal Babbage listeners know that we regularly give away books on the show to those of you who submit the pithiest answers to our most surreal questions. We love answers that appeal to both hemispheres of the brain, creative and analytical. This week, we're giving away the book Being You by Professor Anil Seth, who I interviewed for the show a few weeks ago about his new theories on consciousness. The question that Ken asked you to answer was, what's a good reason why we should build a conscious machine? Or a machine that seems to be conscious? Hi, Alok and Babbage listeners. It's Ken here. I spent the last fortnight pondering all of the answers to Professor Seth's question. We received a plethora of phenomenal replies. There are two runners-up. Damon Sexton, who suggested that just as our consciousness is founded on our sensory capabilities and their limitations, an AI-based entity will have perhaps a million-fold better sensory capabilities and thus a different consciousness, one that we might learn from. The second runner-up, Robert Lipinski, who explained that a consciousness would, quote, re-establish a space for conscientious objectors in our society. He noted that Machines won't question orders like military orders, whereas humans may, which is a good thing. And I agree. But the winners are Doru Ambaras and Safarov Oleg. They offered variants of the same answer. Safarov Oleg wrote, quote, Building conscious machines is just one step from making our own consciousness transferable to new bodies or machines and even potentially reviving the deceased, a stone's throw from eternal life. Doru Ambaras built on that idea by writing, quote, This way we may achieve the mortality of consciousness, even if we can't achieve immortality of the body. Both will win a copy of Professor Sat's book, and our thanks to everyone who entered, if... You are indeed all real people and not robots. Thanks. Thanks, Ken. And thank you for listening to Babbage. The producer is Jason Hoskin. The programme was mixed by Nico Rofast. And the editor is Sandra Schmueli. I'm Alok Jha. And in London, 
This is The Economist. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm. 